Let's pray together a few minutes. I feel like we could pray a long time. Father, we thank you for your presence. Deeply grateful for the reminder today through music, through worship, that you are with us, God, that you are faithful to hold us and to care for us. To remind us that all of our sins, all of the things that we've done wrong, failures, mistakes, Lord, ways that we have hurt people, said things, done things, made sinful choices. Done so many things, Lord, in our lives. So many, so many failures of I'm not honoring you and glorifying you. And God, you are faithful in your love and your grace towards us. And you hold us and you care for us. And you, all because of grace, are continuing to work in us and through us. And so for all of those things and for all that you are, God, we love you and we thank you. It's a blessing to be here today with our church family. It's a blessing to have your word, and the anointing of your spirit to guide us and to teach us, to speak to us, Lord, and oh, how we, we need you to speak to us, to encourage us and to correct us, to call us. And so we pray you would speak to us today. Father, as a church family also, we want to be mindful of those of our family who are struggling today. And think of especially of Mark Smithy and losing his dad, Mike. We pray for their family. Pray for the Bryants, the Morrises. Those of our family who are going through cancer and struggling, illnesses, we're thankful that you're on the throne and that you're with them. And we pray that you administer to them and they would know that you're near. Guide us now from your word, we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to open your Bible with me to uh, Esther chapter 4. 
Uh, we'll continue to look there, so we'll read together in just a moment. I want to raise a question with you this morning as we get started. What is it that you should be doing for God that you're not doing? And I'm just about as serious with that question as any question that I could ask. What is it that you know that you should be doing for God that you are not doing? Ask yourself, is there something that God has called you to do and for whatever reason you've said no? <clears throat> that you're not willing to do? <clears throat> is there an area of ministry where you were once involved in, something that you used to do for the Lord, but today, for whatever reason, you're not doing, you've walked away from you're just not doing it anymore. And you still are gifted. You still have talent. You still have ability. <clears throat> you have experience. But you're just not doing what you used to do. You're not doing what God has called you to do. And so I want you to think deeply about that question. The text that we're going to look at is a, an example of a believer or a Jew named Mordecai speaking to Esther, his young niece, and calling her personally to step up and to do what she knew God wanted her to do. I was uh, made aware this week, <clears throat> excuse me, not this week, <clears throat> excuse me, last several weeks of a, of a situation in the state of Mississippi that's not unique to this state. It's Found out that it's pretty common to most of the states, but there are about 2,100 Southern Baptist churches in Mississippi, and right now over a third of them, so that's over 750 of them, have no pastor, and there are no pastors to be had. You say, well, why, why do you say that? Well, there's a, a growing trend in our country uh, that young men, for whatever reason, are not doing what God has called them to do. Young men, maybe there might be some young men in this church, and you perhaps have never shared this with anyone, but you have sensed at some point in your life that God's called you into ministry. That God has been nudging you and speaking to you about going into vocational ministry, and you might not have ever shared that with anyone, but you, for whatever reason, you've kept that quiet and you're not doing that. For over a third of Mississippi Baptist churches not to have pastors, and that's the same scenario I know in Kentucky and other states, and I also know that among the mainline denominations that there is a, 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 a shortage of pastors. It's not because God is not calling, it's because we're not listening. Many are turning a deaf ear to God, not going into ministry, and then there's others who've been called into ministry and they're not staying with it. They're not keeping their hand to the plow and so they're, they're jumping ship. They're moms and dads, I'm confident, who if your son told you that he was going to follow a call to go into pastoral ministry, there are parents who would not be happy about that. And 
if their daughter would come to them and say, I believe that God has called me and I'm going to pursue a full-time call to go into missions, their parents, their grandparents, who would not be happy if they heard that kind of news. I served on the International Mission Board for eight years as a trustee, and I can tell you there were numerous examples of young men and young women, many times married couples who God had called to the nations to go far away to dangerous places, and their parents were so angry that they had left a career in banking or teaching or some other kind of career. They're so angry and thought their, their sons and daughters had jumped off the deep end and kind of lost their minds. They didn't come to their appointment services to support their call. It's as hard to imagine as it is a witness that repeatedly a young couple would stand and with other family members and grandparents praying over other couples, they'd stand by themselves because their families were not happy that they were following God, doing what God called them to do. On a positive note, I had a woman from this congregation call me a few days ago and shared with me that she felt led to partner with another woman or to partner with the deacons here to prepare Thanksgiving food baskets. So she called and we talked and she's moving forward doing that. And if you were to ask her, she would tell you she's doing that because God placed a thought, a desire on her heart to prepare food baskets, to get other people to work with her, and to distribute those to whoever might be in need. That's an example of a, of a positive example of responding to God's call. And so back to the question, is there something that you should be doing today for God and for whatever reason you said, no, you're not doing it, perhaps hoping that someone else will do it? Have you heard that old phrase, everybody knows that somebody should do something, but nobody does it? You ever heard that? Everybody knows that somebody should do something, but nobody does it. So in this text, I want us to see an example of Mordecai speaking to Queen Esther to do something, to get involved. And I will, I also uh, had this thought, and it's, it's been uh, on my mind for a long time, that uh, there's a few people in this congregation that I know and that I would like to get in my truck and pull up into your driveway some evening and to sit with you in your home and talk to you about your service to the Lord. And specifically, why you're not serving him the way that you know you should. And just have an open, heartfelt, honest conversation. Why is it that you're not stepping up to the plate and serving the Lord and giving him your very best while you still have life and breath? Why you're not serving the Lord? And just have an open, honest conversation. Well, Guess what? I, it's not likely that I'm going to be able to pull up into every one of your driveways and everything. But I would, I would enjoy having that kind of conversation about where are you serving the Lord? How are you serving the Lord? Are you fulfilled doing what you've called 
what God's called you to do? Is there something else that you... And just having those kind of open conversations about service unto God. My prayer today is that you'd have that conversation with the Holy Spirit on your own. To have an impact for Christ. And specifically, I would add to you, add that we, we have a need here for more teachers. More teachers in halos. More assistant teachers in some adult classes. We've already talked to some people about starting some new classes to go after some people that are not currently in Sunday school. And one of the difficulties is we don't have teachers to step into those roles. And it's not because we don't have men and women here who are not gifted, who are not capable. I think there's some other things that we have put before God. And perhaps like Esther, we're reluctant to say yes and to say, God, I'll do whatever needs to be done. I invite you to pray with me in, in uh, Esther chapter 4, starting with the first verse. When Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. That was a way that people would demonstrate their grief. Old sackcloth covered themselves in ash, black ash on their faces. Expression of grief. When Mordecai learned that all that happened, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. (laughs) And in every province where the king's command and decree had arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her, and the queen was deeply distressed. Then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called Haddock, one of the king's eunuchs whom he had appointed to attend her, and she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. So Haddock went out to Mordecai in the city square and was in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. He also gave Haddock a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her. 
and that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. So Haddock returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. Then Esther spoke to Haddock and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Yet Esther says, I myself have not been called to go to the king these 30 days. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther. Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me, neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, and so I will go to the king, which is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. Now, I don't have time to go into great detail to all the background, but just to kind of touch on where we are in this story, there is a Persian king named Ahasuerus, and you know that he's powerful, ruler of the Persian Mede Empire. He's rich, and he is a narcissist. He is self-centered, and he's prone to to drink too much alcohol. He's married to a queen named Vashti, and on a certain occasion, she defies him and refuses to come into his presence when he calls her. And so, in a rage of fury, following bad advice that he receives from his counselors, he banishes Vashti, and she's no longer queen. Then in order to cheer the king up, to they, his counselors gather together and come up with this plan to replace Queen Vashti, that a decree would go throughout all of the Persian Empire and they would send out these representatives of the king and find young, beautiful virgins and they would bring them all back into the king's palace, into a certain quarter prepared for these women. And for one year, all of these women would go through beauty preparations. Six months of skin preparation, skin month, six months of getting their clothes and their makeup, just getting everything right. And then one by one, each woman would be called, would sleep with the king, and whoever the king liked best, that would be the next queen. Pretty slimy, pretty slimy process, wouldn't you agree? And so this is what they do, and they go and gather all these. Well, there's a young 
Jewish girl named Esther, and she's very beautiful. The Bible says that, and she's chosen to go into the king's palace, and she finds favor with the attendants there, and she gets extra preparation, gets her own quarters, gets her own attendants, and finally it comes for her night to spend with the king, and the Bible says that she finds favor with King Ahasuerus, and he decrees that Esther is the next queen. She is seated on her throne. She's only been queen for a short time. And then there's a little, little nuance to the story. The Bible says that her cousin Mordecai, who had raised her, she was younger than him, and he is outside of the gates of the king's palace, and he overhears an assassination plot. And that plot was two of these disgruntled former servants to the king are going to take his life. And so Mordecai, once he hears about this assassination plot, he does the right thing. Do you remember what he does? In chapter 2, verse I think it's around verse 21, he passes along this information to Queen Esther, and Queen Esther passes it along to King Ahasuerus, her husband. And there's an inquiry done, an investigation, and they found out that these two men were indeed going to assassinate the king. And so once they find out that this is an accurate report, they hang these two, these two guys, hang them to their deaths. Mordecai does the right thing, passes along the information, and then something kind of ironic happens. There is a villain in the story named Haman, and Haman receives a promotion in chapter 3. And, the, and part of his promotion also includes that every person throughout the kingdom is to bow before Haman and to pay him homage. And so whenever Haman went out through the streets, people would bow, people would say, oh, here's Haman, and they would bow before him and offer homage, all that is except this Jewish man named Mordecai. The Bible says that Mordecai refuses to bow, refuses to offer any homage to Haman. Haman doesn't really notice it, but there's some other attendants who find out about it. And there, you know, there's always people who want to stir the pot. Have you ever been around people like that? And so they go and tell Haman, hey, I'm not sure you know this, but there's a, young, a Jewish man by the name of Mordecai, and he has never bowed before you, and he is determined he's never going to pay you any homage. And Haman, the villain of this story, once he receives that news, is so angry, so outraged, not only does he decide to punish Haman, but he goes as far as to decide to destroy, to annihilate all of the Jews in the kingdom. And I failed to mention this last week. Do you remember that while these God's people, these exiles are up now living in the Persian empire, you remember there were some other Jews that went back to Jerusalem, back to the promised land, and you heard about Nehemiah and Ezra and their reforms and Prior to that, Zerubbabel had led some people back there, and they had rebuilt the temple, and so the temple is rebuilt back there, and so Ezra and Nehemiah are leading these spiritual reforms, calling people back to God's word, and they're rebuilding the walls. That decree that King Ahasuerus makes up in the north in Persia would have included the annihilation of all of the Jews that were back in Jerusalem. Every Jew on the face of the earth would have been killed. It, were, there was, it was to be this ethnic cleansing. And so that's what 
Haman proposes, and he goes and he sells the idea to King Ahasuerus. And the Bible says that Ahasuerus is so passive, so irresponsible, he says to Haman, he says, you just do whatever seems best for, for you to do, and I'll go along with it. And chapter 3, where we left off, it says, once this edict, once this decree is sent throughout the world, that Jews throughout the world, they're mourning, they're in despair. They have 11 months to get their house in order, and on one day, there's going to be a great slaughter. Every Jew, young and old, child, woman alike, they're going to be slaughtered in one day, and all of their possessions, everything they own, would be plundered by those who took their lives. And so the city of Shushan and the entire Persian Empire is in chaos. Jews are mourning. That's where you pick up the story in chapter 4. And by the way, if you don't overlook the fact that King Ahasuerus and Haman, after they make the decree, they, they gather together and sit down and are having drinks like nothing has even happened. I want you to see with me, if you have your Bible open in the first eight verses, what is Mordecai's reaction to this edict? The Bible says and conveys that he's in, he's in anguish. He tears his clothes. And by the way, people tear their clothes today as a, it's kind of a fashion statement, right? Today when we tear our clothes, buy torn clothes. But back in that day, to tear your clothes was a sign of anguish and and in grief, he's in sackcloth and ashes. And the Bible says that Mordecai cries out to God. And so do all the Jews in the empire. Mordecai and the rest discover Haman's plan. And I can't help but think that Mordecai recognizes the fact that he bears some responsibility for this. He was the lone Jew who decided not to bow, not to pay homage to Haman. And so he couldn't help but think that some of this is partly on him. And I would say to you that your actions and my actions, whether they're faithful actions or faithless actions, our actions affect other people. Choices and decisions that you and I make on a daily basis affect other people. And I've learned this, my sin equals, plural, our consequences. My sin equals our consequences. And likewise, my obedience equals our blessings. Do you think that way? Do you think naturally that when you obey the Lord, your obedience not only blesses you, but do you think about the way that your obedience blesses other people? And likewise, your disobedience, not only, you mean Galatians, Paul said, hey, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever we sow, we're also going to reap. Sin has consequences. But do you think that your individual sin not only has consequences upon you, but your sin affects other people as well? Our actions, our choices, our decisions, whether they are faithless or faithful, always affect other people. And I want you to notice Mordecai does not what does he do? He doesn't seek to have audience with a king. He doesn't try to set up an appointment with a king. He doesn't try to set up an appointment with Haman. His first reaction in this tragic news that he has received is he cries out to God. Yes, it is certainly would be a good thing to go to people. 
When there's an issue between you and a brother and a sister or someone, it's always wise to go directly to them to try it out. But our first response should be to God. When Esther hears of Mordecai's sadness and grief, the Bible says that she is distressed and and so as an expression of her care for him, she sends some comfort, some clothes to, to comfort him and to cheer him, and Mordecai will have no, no part of it. The problem is she doesn't know what's wrong. She's kind of, I think in my mind, she's insulated in the king's palace. Doesn't know really what else is going on in the world, and she doesn't know what was wrong, and instead of provide, trying to provide answers to Mordecai, she's would have been better off to ask some questions, which eventually happens because Mordecai provides Queen Esther with a copy of this, this ethnic decree of slaughter. As you read through this text, you can't help but wonder, was God surprised by this? Do you think that God was worried at all? by Haman's evil, by the king's passivity? You think God was worried? You think God was nervous that he was pacing around in heaven, wringing his hands, wondering how things were going to work out? The fact is, this is all foreknown, foreknown by God. It, it all belongs under God's providence. You remember, God sees ahead and God sees too. And in his providence, God was already seeing too. He was already making provision for what was happening in this story. Let me raise a couple questions with you. How do you react when you receive some bad news? What's, what's your reaction? When you're when you receive some information and you are saddened or shocked or upset or someone says something to you and hurts you or even angers you and frustrates you, what's your first reaction? Is it to panic or is it to get along with God and to pray? There's a story in Acts chapter 12 about the early church. There was a king named Herod, and for political purposes, he arrested James, James the Apostle, put him in prison, and then again, for his own political gain, he has James executed, and he gains political traction from that decision, so then he furthers it by having Peter arrested. He puts Peter in prison, and the Bible says he's about to execute Peter. And do you remember Luke records in Acts chapter 12 what the church is doing? That says that the church is fervently praying for God to intervene and to protect Peter. Acts chapter 2, 10 chapters earlier, we know that these Christians were devoted to prayer. And so while they were grieved over James's execution, deeply concerned and disturbed that this might now happen to Peter as well, they're praying. And you know the story, the Bible, God intervenes in a miraculous way and delivers Peter from prison. In fact, it's kind of funny, the church is praying for his freedom, for his release, and 
he shows up to the prayer meeting, knocks on the door, and there's a little girl named Rhoda who answers the door, and she sees Peter, and she's so shocked and stunned that he's there. She goes in and tells the rest of the people inside who are praying for Peter's release that he's outside the door, and none of them believe it. What's your first reaction? When you are handed some kind of news, some kind of information that's deeply disturbing to you, is it to panic or is it to pray? So you know the story a few weeks ago, we had actually had, uh, we were, as a church, we were going through this marriage conference and Dr. Aiken was in our home. Mindy and I were there together and she was in the kitchen preparing some food and she got a phone call from her sister-in-law that her brother had just died of a heart attack, went out to mow the grass, and a neighbor found him laying in the yard. And you can imagine her reaction to that. And the only thing I knew to do was just to come alongside her and just, and just to hold her and just to pray. And just to pray. That's what God calls us to do in, in situations where things happen. Is to turn to him. To run to him. And a follow-up question is, why does it seem to require drastic news? Why does something drastic, some kind of crisis have to occur in our lives before we learn to depend on God? Why is that? That something has to happen to bring us to our knees before we'll rely on God. Certainly the case in this text. Tragic news, tragic information. I want you to look in verses 8 through 11 and consider Mordecai's request. He calls upon Esther. He says, hey, listen, you're in a position. Why don't you leverage your position and try to influence the king for God's people, specifically to go before King Ahasuerus and intercede and possibly that he would reverse the decree. Passivity was not an option in such an hour. And if you read the text, how does Esther respond? Her response is one of hesitancy. She wavers. She pauses. And she responds to Mordecai and explains to him, these are the only protocols where someone is allowed to go into the king to make any kind of request or any kind of express any kind of desire. And so what she says is, I'm limited. I'm restricted. I can't do what you're asking me to do because it could possibly lead to severe consequences, even my own death. Esther's first response in a time of crisis is to think of herself. She's not thinking about Mordecai. She's not thinking about the rest of the Jews. Her instinct, like ours, is first to think about ourselves. And she, pretty good idea, she doesn't even realize she's not safe. Maybe she doesn't recognize that she's part of the problem. 
that she's going to be included. And so Mordecai points it out. He says, hey, don't you realize that you're not safe either, that your position in the palace doesn't protect you? And lest we be too quick to throw rocks at Esther, we need to think about and ask ourselves, are we hesitant? Are we often hesitant to go through doors that God calls us to walk through? Are we hesitant to step up and do things that God calls us to do? And so we need to be a little slow to throw rocks at Esther. Mordecai reacts with prayer. He requests that Esther do something. She's hesitant to step up. And then in verses 12 through 14, we see this reminder. Once Mordecai discovers that Esther is reluctant, that she's hesitant to go in before the king, he sends a message back to her and explains, you're in danger. Esther, don't think that you're going to escape this. There's no exemptions for anyone. And it's interesting in verse 14, it's when he sends this message back to Esther, he's kind of certain that the Jews would be saved, but we're not really sure what he means. Verse 14 is clear because it's a possible glimpse of God's providence that in Mordecai's mind, mind maybe God is working, or perhaps Mordecai thinks that something else will happen to protect God's people. He does seem certain that Esther, along with her descendants, are going to perish. And therefore, he does something that's kind of easy to overlook. What what does Mordecai do? He strongly encourages Esther to step up. He challenges her. He calls on her to serve and to go to the king. And whether there were risks, whether possibly... Her life might be in jeopardy. He calls her to step up in faith and to do what she can do. Do you have friends, as a follower of Christ, do you have some Christian friends that you know would speak into you, perhaps even to reprimand you if you weren't doing what God called you to do, if you weren't living for God, serving God the way that you knew God was calling you and desired for you to serve, are you you surrounded by friends who would come to you and challenge you? Would you be open to that? Would you be open to someone coming to you and sitting down with you and saying, hey, you need to step up The church needs you. You have gifts. You have certain abilities. Have you ever thought about serving God like this? Have you thought about stepping in and serving the Lord in this way? Would you be open to that? Or would it make you mad? Would you be angry? If somebody is putting their nose where it doesn't belong into your business. And then let me go further. Are you the kind of friend that would go to another brother, to another sister, and, and challenge them? Would you do that? That's kind of hard to do if you're not doing it yourself, right? It's kind of hard for me to go and say, 
to someone else, would you serve the Lord? Would you consider doing this and stepping up if I'm not being faithful myself? Those are good questions, practical questions. Who is it that needs you today to encourage them? Who is it, a brother or sister in Christ, that you need to go to and have a conversation, just an open, loving, honest, heartfelt conversation about stepping up and being more faithful to the Lord? I can think of a few folks in my life. And who is encouraging you? Who is encouraging you? How is God calling you to serve him? How has God gifted you? How, what abilities has God given you that for whatever reason you're just kind of sitting on and you're not using them for his service and for his glory? All of us, all of us have been given spiritual gifts. All of us have some abilities. All of us have some talents. Are you using them for God? Are you serving the Lord in such a way to make Hillcrest Baptist Church stronger, edifying other Christians here? And if not, why not? Why not? If you don't know where to get started, come see me, call someone. Go to, go to somebody else in your Sunday school class, another brother, sister in Christ, and say, you know what? I want to start serving. I want to do more for my Lord. Can you help me figure out what I need to do? I, I would have a hard time thinking that someone would just ignore you, turn you away. I honestly think that one of the challenges for Hillcrest and for other churches is that we're not giving our best to God. We're not giving him our best. And if we're inconvenienced or something is hard, is going to require time and effort and sacrifice, then we just back up and miss out on blessings and rewards have impact with your life for God's kingdom and for his glory I am 61 years old and by the grace of God I've been pretty healthy I don't know how many more years that I have left hope 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 that I'm in the third, third quarter not third quarter that doesn't make sense I, I hope I still have a third to go I don't know But I, I've come to the realization the only things that really matter, the only thing that really make a difference and have impact is what I do for the Lord. You all know where I live. Minnie and I live. We bought a, probably one of the worst houses in, on Owen Road. It's Jason Jordan's fault. And I've worked my tail off in that house, and so is Mindy, and it's a fine home. But I can tell you this, I, that home, that house has not brought me a lot of fulfillment. I'm thankful for it, but that's not where I find fulfillment. 
I drive a pretty nice vehicle. 2018 Chevy Equinox. And I can tell you this, I, I'm thankful for it. It gets me from point A to point B safely. But I don't really glory in that car. It doesn't really, doesn't really bring me a lot of satisfaction. I can tell you what matters to me. What matters to me is my wife, and I'm loving her and serving her, doing my very best the way God would call me to serve. And I care about my kids, that they're walking with Jesus and want to do my very best to set a good example, that they would see joy and peace in my life, that many and I can continue to influence them for Christ. And I care about you and your family, and I care deeply about this church. If I didn't, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't be here. And those are the things that matter. Those are the things that matter. And I guess what I'm saying to you today is to, to think, to evaluate where your priorities are, And if you're not really stepping into the kingdom, stepping into spiritual service, then my challenge to you is, is why not? And just to exhort you to say, all these other stuff, all these other things that we're consumed with, they're all temporary. I, my, my son sent me a picture yesterday on the cell phone, and my four-year-old grandson is playing soccer. And so on Saturdays, he sends me pictures and sends me little vid videos of Will and I got to see a little video of him kicking a goal and yesterday Andrew sent me a picture and he's holding his son, he's got his first trophy and he's a big old gleam, big old smile on his face and you know that's pretty cool, isn't it? But that trophy doesn't really matter. It's pretty cool that he's with his son doing that kind of thing but that stuff's all temporary. All temporary. When we moved down here, I went through an upstairs closet in our house, and this is the truth, there was probably 15 or 20 trophies in that closet. And Minnie and I were trying to move things to pack, and you know, I had to make decisions. What do I do with these trophies? Trophies that my son won playing ball, baseball. He ain't playing baseball today. And guess what? Your son and your grandsons are not going to play professional baseball. They're not going to make a living doing that. You know where all those trophies went? They went in the church dumpster. Because they don't mean anything. Even called my son, do you want these trophies? Dad, I want those trophies. He don't care about those trophies. He's working a job, trying to make a living. We need to refocus on what really matters. And I'm saying this to you with a heart full of love. Some of you hear me. Some of you need to step up your game. Not because I'm saying it, because you know it. And you're missing out on blessings and opportunities to make a difference for God's glory and for his kingdom. And uh, some of you need to teach. Be willing to step up and say, I'll, I'll help teach and minister the word in the church. Esther steps up. You know the end of the story. She steps up and 
And we're going to see that next week because everything turns next week. But you know, remember what she does? She says, okay, I'm going to try this thing. I'm going to do what you're asking me to do. But here's what we're going to do. We're all going to fast and pray. And so she says, let none of us eat anything, drink anything for three days. I'm going to fast. I'm going to get all my maidservants around me to fast and to pray. And so Mordecai, you fast and pray. And all the Jews throughout the empire are going to fast. It doesn't say prayer, but prayer is equated with that. Our motivation for serving the Lord is the gospel. That's, that's what motivates. Just think about God's love for me, what Christ did for me on the cross, his sacrifice, his shed blood, that he gave it all for me and rose from the dead that you and I might have a new life that's, that's what drives us, is the gospel, the love of Christ. Paul said it to the Corinthians, he says, it's the love of Christ, it's the gospel that constrains me, that compels me, that i got to serve the Lord. Let me pray with you as we bow together. Father, we pray that we would hear your voice and that we would not tarry, that our obedience would not be tardy, but we would say yes to you, Lord, your Lord. And we'd give you our first fruits, our very best. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you would raise up teachers here, men and women who passionate about ministering your word. I thank you, God, for those who are currently and pray your blessings on them. Father, we pray that you would raise up just laborers for the harvest. You said to your disciples not to delay and say, we still have time. It's, we can do it later, but today the fields are ripe unto harvest. Help us to have the conversations that we need to have with others. Give others courage to have conversations with us that we need to hear. And Father, may you be pleased that all of our responses are in faith, in obedience, to honor, to glorify you. And Lord, we pray that the best days for Hillcrest Baptist Church would be right in front of us. We thank you for the way that you're at work among us. We're just grateful, God. Thank you for that. We look forward to greater things to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.